I can't help but imagine if Jesus were physically present and he had his own YouTube channel and that's how he communi communicated with us in this particular time and moment, I can't help but imagine Jesus looking out at all of his followers and looking at the unsettled nature of our world and saying something like, in the midst of the chaos that you're feeling right now, if you're wondering what to do next, I want you to learn from the Joker. You know, this infamous villain that often fought Batman. But look at what he was so good at. He was strategic. He could garner a massive following. Um, and frankly, he just allowed his employees to have fun in their work. Learn from the Joker. Now that may feel absurd to say out loud, like Jesus would ever do anything like that. And frankly, if Jesus did say something like that, we would probably be so nitpicky about all the things he didn't say or that he was maybe assuming and start dovetailing or peeling apart the, the Joker's worldview that we would miss what Jesus was indeed trying to teach us. And frankly, some of you may be thinking, well, Jesus would never do that. I don't know if I'm so sure. Actually, we step into one of the most contentious parables where Jesus does something exactly like that. He uses a strange technique where he actually teaches a profound truth using a horrendous example. Now, this parable is so complex and has, you know, caused interpreters a lot of angst, such that even in the fourth century, one of the Roman emperors by the name of Julian the Apostate, gotta love that nickname, right? He used this parable to tell and warn all of the Roman Empire that what Jesus was really doing was teaching his followers to be liars and thieves. He didn't really understand the parable, but I don't blame him. It's pretty complex. And what Jesus is wanting to do here is Jesus is inviting us to learn something right from the worst. Jesus is inviting us to learn something right from the worst. And it can cause kind of this doggy head tilt kind of moment where you're trying to make sense of what it is and that's why it's hard to interpret and that's why it's hard to really lean into this. And yet, Jesus is gonna reveal in this brilliant story where you and I might be the worst. If you've been following Jesus for a while, this is an area that we often struggle with. And frankly, it's something we need today, now more than ever. So let's take a look, shall we? Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And Jesus is surrounded by his disciples, those who are following him, and what it looks like to live into this kingdom of God that's breaking into reality. And he tells them a story, a story about a really rich guy. And you know he's rich because he doesn't have to think about his riches. The moment you get really wealthy, you hire other people to take care of your wealth and then make you more wealthy. And this particular steward or manager we find out in verse one has kind of blown it, all right? We find out that charges are brought up against him that he is wasting his master's possessions. It's a pretty big claim. And the owner brings in this manager and tells him he's fired, that he's done, that this is it. And he tells him to go get the counting books, bring them to him, He's finished. Now, to be clear, it's not like the owner's still wrestling whether or not these charges are true. This isn't like an IRS audit. Instead, this is like, go get a box, clean out your desk, and we'll see you uh, never. And so while this manager is carrying out this last charge, no one else knows he's fired yet. He starts thinking through, what are the next options for me? 
And he starts thinking through all these other places where he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. And then he has an idea, a brilliant idea, this last ditch effort to kind of land himself a future of care and comfort. And this is how it plays out. We heard it read for us earlier, but I'll just walk us through it again. What he does is as he gets back to his place, he asks one of the master's servants, remember, no one knows he's fired yet, and he says, go get me the debtors of my master one by one. And so they go, they grab the debtor, and they bring them back one by one. And so this dishonest manager will come to find out Meets, which eat, meets with each of the debtors one by one. And then he asks them, what do you owe my master? What do you owe the owner? And this was common, right, in this particular day and age because not as much was carried around that was in written form and so much was in an oral culture just to kind of agree that we're on the same terms here. And they would say, this is how much I owe. And then he would hand them the book. And he would say, in your own hand, right now, this decrease in how much you owe my master. And so they would write it, and then they would leave feeling refreshed and relieved that they have now this decreased debt. Now, this is extraordinarily savvy for a couple reasons, okay? Number one, he brought them in one by one. It's way easier to guide and tell a story when it's just one-on-one. -on -one. And if it feels a little fishy, it's just the two of you. There are no witnesses. It's just his word against your word. And so the people, as they're writing down their decreased debt, can do so while also preserving their community honor. Brilliant. Secondly, the other thing he has them do is write it down in their own hand, right? So that when he does turn in the books to the owner, the owner will open it up and notice that each of the debtors know of their decreased debt. That's also really important so that he understands the facts before him. And you need to understand that the debt that's being decreased here, this isn't like a nice quarterly bonus that's engaged with each one of these debtors. Instead, scholars agree that the debt reduction for each of these examples is roughly, at minimum, to equal to two years' worth of wages. This is a massive amount of reduction. And this is brilliant because, and as we see in verses 3 and 4, in a reciprocity culture where if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, he knows that in decreasing this debt, once the news gets out, they will be more willing to receive him into their homes. Now imagine this all happens, and the owner doesn't know anything yet until he starts to hear the sounds of celebration coming from the town. You see, when you start to experience this level of debt reduction for each one of the people that owe you money, the word's going to get out. And the town starts celebrating just how rich, and you can imagine just people celebrating how rich and how marvelous and how generous this one rich guy is. He's one of the best guys we've ever had in this town. Slay the fattened calf. It is time to just honor this amazingly generous owner. Now, when the owner gets wind of this, he has one of two options. One... He can sit down each of the debtors one by one and tell them, hey, uh, this manager did this without my permission. I'm sorry, but you still owe me the full amount. And even though he has full rights to do this, and it is not his fault, the experience from each one of those debtors will not just be disappointment, but a feeling of betrayal, and then even a, a feeling of contempt toward the owner. And in an honor and shame culture, that price is way higher than the financial losses that this owner has experienced. Now, the other option he could engage is by keeping his mouth shut. 
basking in his new boost of reputation. And then just consider this one of the greatest marketing expenditures of his life. You see, this dishonest manager had leveraged the resources under his care to secure for himself a better future. And how does the owner respond? We see here in verse 8 that he commends the dishonest manager, not for any of his unethical behavior, but for his shrewdness. This is a fascinating word. This is basically the idea and the concept that we see across the pages of Scripture where it's described as wisdom. It is clearly and cleverly navigating the world that is with a, for a positive outcome. This gentleman is extraordinarily shrewd. He's navigated the resources, the financial means at his disposal, expecting a reciprocity culture to then secure a better future when he knows that his world as it is is coming to an end. That's the story. So what does Jesus have to say after he tells this story of this very dishonest manager? That's what's fascinating. If you look at chapter 16, verse 8, the second half, Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, people who aren't following me, they seem to be able to navigate the world as they see it way better than Christians. Those who are following me can seem to navigate the world where God's kingdom is breaking in. In other words, Christians have something to learn from non-Christians. <laughs> no matter who we are, we always can find something to learn from someone because of the imago Dei, the image of God in every human being. And Jesus wants us to understand. He wants us to see and to learn that we are to be shrewd. And so many times non-Christians are better at being shrewd. You see, when Jesus tells us to be shrewd, I don't know, it feels like a problem, right? Because in other situations, Jesus has even told us to be as shrewd as serpents, right? And then in, instantly, in kind of like the biblical imagination, I don't know about you, but for me, I think, when was the last time a serpent was shrewd that like is really prominent? Oh, Genesis 3, that was the devil. Great. Like that sounds icky, theological term, of course, for, for me. And so when Jesus is now encouraging me to be shrewd, what on earth does that look like? And what does that look like within God's kingdom. And there are a lot of places we could go, but I think we should just continue to follow Jesus's logic as he portrays it here. And so look with me at verse 9. After he says this statement that Christians have a lot to learn from non-Christians, specifically on this area of shrewdness, he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, there's a whole host of places we could go when we talk about Christian shrewdness. Frankly, we could probably spend a whole series, especially today, that could be really, really helpful. But today we're going to focus where Jesus focuses. Money. Money, money, money! Right? Like, we got to zero in. This is such a crucial component, and for a couple of reasons, all right? One, that's where Jesus goes. When he talks about unrighteous wealth, he's actually saying unrighteous mammon, money. Use that money to build relationships. So Z Jesus is zeroing in right at the get-go on money. It's not exclusively money as you continue to follow the text, but first he's hitting on this bullet point of money, and it's pretty clear in the parable that Jesus is emphasizing money 
as well. Secondly, something that Jesus loves to talk about and Americans hate to talk about is money, all right? And I don't know the future, but if by chance over the next coming months we start to see a greater scarcity rather than um, a lack of scarcity or, or more abundance, then it's going to be way more easier for Christians to act scared rather than shrewd with the resources that God has provided us financially. And honestly, over and over again, across the teachings of Jesus, he interconnects what we and how we understand our financial realities and how that reveals and impacts our spiritual realities. Number three, I know you're like, I don't need these many points, but I think it's actually really important. Money, greed, misunderstanding, and misuse of money is at the heart of so much of our primary conversations right now, whether it be racial injustice, whether it be the health of the economy, whether it be reparations, whether it be relationships, whether it be the reality that some economists are saying due to forced evictions, we might see one of the largest rises in homelessness with a possibility of a 40% increase in this country. So this is an extremely pertinent conversation when it comes to every conversation we appear to be having these days. And then lastly, people who are really shrewd with their money as they seek to think and, and engage God's kingdom breaking in, this tends to be both a training ground and also a sign that they're shrewd in other areas. Okay, so when we think about shrewdness in God's kingdom when it comes to our money, here's the big idea we see on display in today's passage. Using God's money for others is in your best interest. So one of the most shrewd things you can do with your money is using God's money for others is in your best interest. Now, what do we normally think? At least I normally think that my money is my money and it's for my bills, or at least my desires, it's for me. But there's a couple reasons why that's just not true when we're trying to follow Jesus. And here are three, just quick ones. Okay, one, your money isn't your money. That's a big implicit statement in this whole parable. We are managers of what God has entrusted. There's not like a percentage that we give back to God. All of it's his and we leverage it for his purposes. That's what it means to follow him. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Your money isn't your money. Number one, just if you're seeking to follow Jesus, that's pretty important. Number two, money is a means, not an end. And whenever we mess that up, that's when so much brokenness breaks in. And we may not say that we believe money is an end, but whenever we sacrifice others, Whenever we try to do or lean into and, and, or even just choose not to challenge unjust systems that benefit only certain and we happen to be in that certain crew and disadvantage others, we have to ask ourselves, are we seeing money as an end or a means? Because money can give us some of our wants, but it'll never fulfill our needs. And we need to understand that money is a means and not an end. And this is where the third point is really important. Money can be a catalyst, a catalyst for building rich, eternal friendships. Money can be a catalyst for building rich, eternal friendships. Now, a couple things need to be noted here. One, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much you earn. 
I mean, you just have to look at Jesus' affirmation of the widow who gives like this extraordinarily small amount, but for her it was everything. And Jesus then says she's given more than everybody else here, right? For Jesus, it's not even about the amount. It's about what you're doing with what you've been entrusted and how you are leveraging it for eternal purposes, his kingdom. And don't we see that here on display? This dishonest manager, he sees his life coming to an end and he tries to work all the resources, the financial resources he has at his disposal to secure a better future for himself and therefore also for the community. We see this actually, it's really fascinating when you look at the second half of verse 9. When Jesus, after he says, make friends using money, right? So that, this is a henna clause. This is where we start to understand why we should do this. Really important to understand the structure of this sentence. So that when it fails, when all of this comes crumbling down, the world as you know it comes crumbling down, when finally God's kingdom is here in its fullest extent, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, a lot of scholars wrestle with they. What is the they pointing to? And there's really three options. I don't know why I did five. Three. Three options, okay? It's either the poor, because over and over and over again in Luke's gospel account, the poor are central. How you engage the poor reveals actually how you're engaging God. Once again, we cannot divorce the vertical with the horizontal or we stopped following Jesus, okay? So it's either the poor, and they tend to be agents of receiving God's people. Two, it could be the angels receiving us into our eternal dwellings. But in both cases, those are meant to be agents of God, okay? And that's where some people say they is actually pointing to this royal understanding of God, right? Either way, all of it is like, hey, if you want to move into God's neighborhood, the most coveted neighborhood in all of eternity, if you want to be with him, then you need to be leveraging your financial resources today for others because it's in your best interest. If we want to be with God, there is a heavy emphasis on what we do financially and how that reveals where we are and where we're headed spiritually in terms of our understanding of how God's kingdom is breaking in. And some of you may be thinking, Gabe, this is sounding like works righteousness. Like I have to do all these things to be accepted. No, 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 no. But over and over again, in the Gospels and across the New Testament, righteousness works its way out. You will reveal who you're worshiping. You will reveal who you're following. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear that to follow him means this, and that is the most shrewd thing you can do with your finances. And so just like the dishonest manager was trying to secure a better future, we too or to be shrewd with our finances, what we've been entrusted to secure for ourselves a better future. Now, some of you may be saying, Gabe, that is highly self-interested. Yeah, it is. If you're not interested in your future, I don't know what to tell you. Like literally, we don't do anything without self-interest. Now there's a difference between self-interest and selfishness, okay? And even when Jesus says, follow me, if you want life, who doesn't want life? I'm interested in life for me. If you're interested in life, then it's going to take death, okay? But it's always still self-interested, but we have to trust that Jesus has our best interest in mind. That's the categorical difference. And so when we think about shrewdness, here's the beauty of all of this as well, as we serve a master who's way better than the master in the parable, who knows no ends to his resources, 
who forgives the debts of people lavishly that he might win some. So how much more you and I, when we've been entrusted with financial resources for a very short time to carry out God's ends through that means in order to secure a better future and so know and live out of our identity of God's kingdom come. This is what we're called to. This is the beauty of this parable that eludes so many throughout history. Because listen, the end is coming. And Jesus is making this abundantly clear. And he continues to detail this out in verses 10 through 13. The end is coming. And the question will come as to whether we were selfish and we worshiped mammon. Once again, there's that money for money again, or that, na- that word for money again, or God, because we can't serve both. So let me ask you a question. Kind of listening to this, if you haven't turned off uh, the service yet because um, you're bored with it or whatever, it, 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 I want to ask you a question. What will you do differently this week with what you have? Jesus is telling this to his disciples, not just to give them information and then to keep spending their money and their resources the way they want. Instead, it's meant to elicit change. And before you answer that question, I want us to do just a quick inventory of even our bodies, okay? Close your eyes for a second. I know some of you are like, wait a second, what? Okay, but trust me for a second. What are you feeling when I ask you that question? What will you do differently this week with what you have? Does your body feel tight and you feel angry? Did your mind instantly start running towards self-justification as to why you spend what you spend? Are you willing to be honest and do the self-assessment to say maybe something needs to change? Because to be a follower of Jesus, you must actually follow Jesus. I know that sounds really simple, but it's also extraordinarily profound. And Jesus wants us to follow him here. He wants us to do an audit of our finances and to think through, okay, how am I budgeting? How am I living? Not just in my 10% tithe that he encourages us to give to the church. True. And not just an above and beyond generosity or alms to the poor, but thinking through every dollar through strategic and shrewd mindset and how we might further his purposes. How are we thinking more robustly? If Jesus were to look at your budget, what would he change? Are you willing to ask that question and then really actually change when conviction sets in? Because listen, the end is coming (laughs) and there will be a day and it's sobering for me, folks. There, There will be a day where Jesus will come back and this coming kingdom won't be just breaking in, it will have arrived and we will stand before Jesus and we long to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not to earn his love, not in any way, shape, or form to earn his love, but to also celebrate his affirmation. We see this over and over again, this tension within the text. Jesus calling us to follow him more faithfully and perseveringly in the midst of every aspect of our life. And if not, if we don't, if we don't care, just, if we're just done trying to reassess our finances, we're like, it's fine, it's good enough, I'm not going to think about it anymore. At best, we might find ourselves at the end of our life with regret. Looking back, right? That's that moment where you look back and you think about all the things you could have done or should have done. And now that you're older and wiser, you realize, man, I should have listened to those folks when they encouraged me to change. And the iconic scene I always comes to my mind is, is from the end of Schindler's List, 
where, where, where Schindler is standing there after he'd spent all of this money to get so many Jewish, Jewish folks out of Nazi Germany. And there he's seeing the faces of the people that he helped get out of this death camp and in this place. And he looks around and he says, I could have done more. And this gentleman trying to encourage him because of the great good he's done. He, you did so much. But he's like, I could have done more. This car. I don't need this car. That would have been 10 more people. 10 more people. Listen, at best, folks, if we don't start thinking more shrewdly about our finances, at best we might experience regret. At worst, we might find ourselves at the end of our lives realizing that we had self-deceived ourselves. That we thought just because we wrote Jesus in our Bible once, or prayed a prayer when we were six, and didn't care any mind of what it actually meant to follow Jesus, that when we stand before him, he might very well say, I never knew you. You were worshiping mammon, your whole life, money. What about me? Beware. I say that in no way, shape, or form to cause any sort of insecurity, but to cause sober self-reflection. This is serious business. People have died and bled over God's word that it might be entrusted to us that we might learn what it means to follow Jesus. May we not waste it. May we instead ask, okay, what, what will I do differently this week with what I have? Because using God's money for others is in my best interest. Will we be shrewd? I pray we will. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use all kinds of tactics and all different kinds of avenues to shape, to challenge, to grow your people in ways that probably feel still um, a bit contentious today. I'm sure you would have received a lot of scoffing or pushback from Christians by the way you taught this particular story. But thank you. And may it shake us up the way you wanted it to. May it cause one of the deepest idols in my heart and so many of us to come crumbling down as we follow more faithfully you and you alone. Holy Spirit, convict us, grow us. Lord Jesus, lead us. Heavenly Father, empower us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so now we come uh, to one of the meals, one of these spaces where we remember God's outrageous generosity to us. Here at the Lord's Supper, we remember that God didn't just give us everything. He gave us his son. And when Jesus came, he lived perfectly. He died sufficiently on the cross for our sin that he might give us forgiveness free of charge and so that we might follow him in life and life abundant now and into eternity. This is represented in common bread and common juice. The bread represents his body broken and torn for us. And this juice represents his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have some elements ready and you'd like to partake, now would be a perfect time to do that. And I don't know about you, but if you've been walking with us in this online journey for a while, sometimes you just get out of the habit and you're like, I'll do communion next week. I want to really encourage you, if you've got nothing ready, pause it. Go get some stuff. It doesn't matter whether it's milk and cookies, whatever you got, just bring it back and let's partake in this moment together, shall we? But before we come, 
Let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he's betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, receive God's good generosity. And may that now fuel you to be shrewd with all that God's entrusted to you. Amen.